Hey y'all, Alex Barenka here, head of external affairs at Bear Shop and host of Finding Inspo, the first shoppable podcast where we'll bring you the stories of some of the biggest names in style and design, digging deep into how they turned inspiration into successful businesses. And each week, my guests and I curate the Finding Inspo shop at bearshop.com slash inspo with the products that emerge from their personal stories. If you've been following me on Instagram, you can imagine how pumped I am for today's guest. I'm a food fanatic and I'm always looking for new tools for my kitchen. Zach Shaw is the co-founder of Milo, a cookware brand whose affordable Dutch ovens have rivaled the legacy brands in the eyes of discerning reviewers. Now, if you have no idea what a Dutch oven is, hang with me. Zach didn't know the ins and outs of ceramic cookware when he started Milo. What he did have was a proven knack for figuring out how to build a product that people will need and love. I'm sure by the end of this conversation, you'll be inspired to start your own company and to add a Dutch oven to your kitchen arsenal. Were you always a cook? Were you always a chef? How did you get onto this idea? So I've never been a chef formally. Um, I consider myself a recreational chef for sure. But it more so came, Milo more so came from my fiance, who's a chef. Um, And she's actually, too, a recreational chef. She's really a creative director at a fashion house. But aside from her day job, she and we cook together like crazy and have pop-up dinners and entertain very often. And she's worked at restaurants after her day job just for fun to learn how it works in the kitchen. And we quickly realized that we were it felt like we were running a restaurant out of our house. And we realized that we were cooking predominantly with cast iron. And we also realized that none of that cast iron we'd purchased. It was all hand-me-downs. But for a couple that cooks and entertains so often and is so passionate in running this home restaurant, why aren't we going out to buy what's perfect for us that we love? Well, because it was prohibitively expensive. And we found that to outfit our kitchen, a new kitchen in a new home, the right way, it would cost a few thousand bucks. And that seemed a little bit out of reach for our friends and family and and people who were like us, cooking all the time, entertaining, and having home-cooked meals with friends and family at home. So, And I am a huge foodie cook. My Sundays revolve around my farmer's market trips. I do my batch mother sauce every Sunday, and I figure out how to plan from there. I don't own a Dutch oven because it is cost prohibitive because a 250 300 mm-hmm. plus price point is pretty high i guess when you thought about um what kind of folks you would be targeting is it people like you all who is your kind of target audience when you started milo it's exactly us uh it's exactly me and sometimes so much so to a fault we our target audience with milo feels like you and i and my fiance and i and our friends and we all have the same problem as you and had the same problem, and that's precisely kind of why we tried to create a modern line of cookware that you can afford without inheriting. And you weren't always in cookware. And before we get back to Milo, mm-hmm. I, I want to take a step back and rewind. And I want to go all the way back to the company that you started, I think, when you were around college age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that'll help inform uh, some of your skills that you used to create Milo. What were you doing back in college that was a little less kitchen, a little more uh, mobile, per mm-hmm. se? Uh, in college, I worked with my younger brother and two of our buddies, and we started a direct-to-consumer bicycle business. And it was really on, really early on in e-com. 
we started that in, I mean, we started working on it in 2009 and we launched in 2010. And paid social, for instance, wasn't really a thing back then. And nothing e-commerce was as saturated at all. And so it, it was really fun. We, we ran that bit. I, I worked there for five years and we grew the team really big and uh, had a lot of fun. Some of those guys are still working there and still going strong. They're based in LA too. And so, I, yeah, we started a bicycle company out of our dorm rooms, frankly. Three of us were in Madison, Wisconsin, and my brother in um, Morningside Heights. And it wasn't just any bicycle business. It was a, what, glow-in-the-dark bicycle business? So we launched we we launched a glow-in-the-dark bike, a line of glow-in-the-dark bikes, which w- went really well for us. and was really buzzy, and people loved talking about it. And it was very cool. And we developed the paint with a team of manufacturing people that make paint. And the th- beautiful thing was we thought it was cool and gimmicky, but we didn't realize was it's really a safety feature too. There are so many bike accidents. Bike lights are required left and right in different states, and you got to have them on, and people have them on helmets. And visibility is the biggest thing to prevent accidents on bikes. And a glow-in-the-dark bike, the whole thing is obviously illuminated and People really loved that. So, yeah. Why wasn't there a glow-in-the-dark bike before? I don't know. It's a good question. It's kind of like, why didn't anyone else think of this? It wasn't that hard. You did have to develop the paint, though, right? That was a process. Yeah, it was. And it's tough. People store bikes in their offices and homes and garages where they're not exposed to a ton of light. But the way that the paint worked was that if it were exposed to sunlight for hours at a time, the glow would last longer. Obviously, like the glow-in-the-dark stickers on your you know, ceiling of your bedroom or whatever. And so we really needed people to be riding their bikes during the day to absorb the light to be able to shine at night. But you know, the, developing it was hard, and we had a ton of iterations and had to revise the product. And at first, it wasn't worthy of uh, retail at all. And, and we kind of figured it out and made it happen so you're a bunch of college-age kids Mm -hmm. who founded this bike business yeah uh i'm assuming you learned a lot along the way to kind of grow into the shoes that you need to fill to Mm -hmm. run a business what were the kind of biggest takeaways you had in your role at your prior bicycle company i think my high level biggest takeaway was that we had none of us had any working experience we'd never had bosses to tell us what to do to show us the ropes to give us a playbook we really had we were paving our own path. We had no clue what we were doing, and we just simply figured it out. We had to hire someone. You Google it. We had to purchase more inventory. We have to do wholesale. We, we, we just simply figured it out, and we learned the hard way. And it was just grit and trial and error and putting our heads together, and we figured we're smart guys. We're college-educated now, and let's make it happen. And, and it was just a lot of brute hustle, frankly. So you launched in 2010, pre-social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, Not pre, but... Early days, mm-hmm. perhaps pre-social media, paid advertising uh, kind of, yeah. ramp up. What did your marketing look like at the time? Marketing with the bicycle business was really, frankly, word of mouth. We'd have one retail store call us, and we'd get in that store, and then seven more retail stores would call us, and then customers would see them at those retail stores and user bike riders. And that's really how it happened. We weren't spending a dime on marketing back then. It was just, it was just domino effect. 
piggybacking off a happy cyclist. So at what point did you decide you wanted to move on to try something new and where did you go next? I probably left the bike biz about five years ago, maybe four or five years ago. And I decided I wanted to do something next when I felt like we had kind of solved our mission a little bit. We, we accomplished what we set out to, which was to get more people on bikes and make an impact and create a brand. And I felt like we had hired such a solid team of people, all of whom were smarter than I was. Uh, that That's were a sign way... of a good leader, right? Yeah, I think so. And so uh, they were all more capable, and I felt like I wanted to take a stab at doing something new. And so I set out to see if I could do it again with something else. Was Milo the next thing, or were there other trials and perhaps errors along the way? There was a lot of soul-searching, long hikes, travel, and a couple a couple tries at other e-com projects. Most notably, we, my current business partner, Caden, and I launched a home goods organic linens company before this, and Milo kind of spun out of that. We were working on that, and it was taking off, and customers loved the product, and we were having a lot of fun, but we, in the background, were working on this bigger cookware idea, and the, the Graces, it was called, was really just an interim project that we were doing on the side while Milo took off. And then the Graces kind of took off, and we said, well, do we need to do the Milo thing? And we still continued to pursue both sort of simultaneously, and then Milo really jumped off early, and we decided to put the Graces to bed and focus our attention on Milo. I mean, the the luxury linens department, especially in DTC and direct-to-consumer land, is, is pretty crowded. Mm-hmm. It seems like there aren't as many. There's almost no players that I can think of in that mid-range. You have a couple of Dutch oven companies that sell really low-end. Perhaps mm-hmm. the quality isn't there. And then you have your legacy companies at the really high end. Yeah. Was it that market opportunity that convinced you, or was it just the sheer momentum that you saw with Milo? I think it was both due to the passion for the space I knew I wanted to do, I had to do something that I was passionate about, that I could, I mean, we cook every night with it, with it or without it. We cook with friends and family almost every night. So the passion thing was a big piece of it. I knew I could get excited about doing this. And if I can't get excited about the product I'm working with, it's not going to be successful because I'm not going to work on it. So I, th- I think it was mostly the passion. I mean, customers loved it too. You know, we, we launched in April of last year and it was really widely well-received we had tons of great customer feedback. People reached out left and right, and new opportunities came in the door. And it started to be really fun and exciting and busy and hectic, and then kind of gone, went from there. Before we dive into those early days, I want to rewind just a little bit. You, you love cooking. Cooking is something that you do have a lot of kind of emotional tie to. How did you land on the Dutch oven specifically? There are a lot of kitchen tools mm-hmm. you could have gone with. Well, as I mentioned before, cast iron is something that was all over our stovetop. And we, and we still, but we used to, and still, keep our Dutch ovens and skillets, cast iron skillets, on our stovetop. We don't put them away. We wash them and we put them back there. And I think that's what a lot of people do because they're, they're heavy, they're really functional and versatile, so you can use them for every meal, and they're pretty. So we decided to go with cast iron because that's what we were using to cook with, and I, we decided to get rid of our nonsticks and aluminums and microwaves and that kind of thing in lieu of cast iron. And so 
we saw an opportunity because we wanted to buy new sizes and shapes and colors. And you're exactly right. It was either $400 for something. We were getting ripped off in both directions, it felt like. Buying something that's a luxury brand priced item, that's a great product, but a bit too expensive. and Or something that's really cheap cost-wise, but also really cheap quality-wise. So what did that early development process look like? The early development process was was fun and challenging and new and exciting. And we we traveled a lot, frankly. We toured factories and met with builders and makers, people that make these things in their garages and factories that have 5,000 people making these things overseas, in Europe, in Asia, in the States, in the Midwest, on the East Coast, uh, downtown Los Angeles. And we met with as many people as we could. We did as much research as we could. We bought as much product as we could, good, medium, and bad. And we ended up working with our favorite pick of the batch, who we thought could help bring our vision to life. And you love food, love cooking, mm-hmm. but you're not a cast iron expert. What did that ramp up process look like from an education standpoint? Was it mostly trying? Like what guided your decision making in terms of these are the boxes that I need to check to be able to pick the one that is the producer that's the best for us? Yeah, so the thing we like about cast iron is cast iron is not casting iron is a centuries old technology. It's not something new. It's not there's so many gimmicky innovative little tech uh, kitchenware products and there are, we see them all the time stainless skillets that have hexagonal patterns that are designed to release your fried eggs faster and things like that that we're all wear kind of wear down over time and cast iron's been around forever from the ancient times right up through a great a couple great wars cast iron's built i mean it's built modern civilization and we decided we wanted to create a product that can earn its way into your family's it, it, that's worthy of of working its way into your family's heritage and cookware collection it can be passed down and we we didn't like that we saw that microwaves and nonstick aluminum and that kind of thing were invading our kitchens and we wanted to kind of go back to what it used to be because we felt like those times were better when people were repairing and keeping and maintaining their cookware rather than just replacing with new cheap products and i do i might not have a dutch oven but i do have a cast iron pan and there is a seasoning process and Mm -hmm. there's a care process and for me it's almost therapeutic um for my boyfriend he doesn't really Mm -hmm. get it he likes just to wash it and move on but that is kind of the benefit of the dutch oven talk through how the dutch oven is different with the different coating and and kind of why it's such an asset to to a home chef. Yeah, well, there's there's really two schools when it comes to cast iron products. There's the enameled side of things, and there's the seasoned side. So your boyfriend prefers the enameled, which is what we make, and sounds like you like the therapeutic nature of having to maintain your skillet. That sometimes is the best ones are frankly passed down from you know grandma's kitchen. The enameled product, which is what we do, is coated with a with an enamel, which is sort of like a glassy porcelain coating. And the pros of that is that you can put in the dishwasher. You can use scrubbing agents and dish soap and that kind of a thing. It's it's pretty unbreakable. It lasts forever. Things it gets naturally non. I mean, it starts naturally nonstick, but it gets better over time. 
and it looks really pretty and you can get it in every color and that's really fun and our customers like that and we like that versus the cast iron skillet which I think you're talking about which you do have to season and you can't put in the dishwasher or use hard soaps and which I cook he cleans so he doesn't love that whole you know it's a little tougher but but you might be the reason why I I add one to my uh, Mm -hmm. to my kitchen inventory so you you chose to go with the the enameled kind Uh, you found your producer which is what in in China in China a lot of the, the legacy companies do produce out of France. Mm-hmm. How did you, did you have to square that idea? Um, a lot of people, perhaps because of the idea that these Dutch ovens have to be passed down because they are so expensive mm-hmm. and they are this heritage product. Did you find any pushback to the idea of producing something not where they had always been made? We did find pushback internally. We pushed back ourselves. But when we visited all factories, both in Europe and in Asia and the States, we knew right then and there that this was not something we didn't need to stick to manufacturing in Europe just for the stigma. But the manufacturing process where we manufacture, where I've been probably three times this year, go out a handful of times a year, it's amazing. It's the best factory we've ever seen. The we think they're quicker to adapt to new technologies. And as I mentioned, casting iron is not a it's not that complex of a process. You have a mold, stainless steel tools that you press together to with molten iron and it presses it and forms it. And these machines have been around for centuries. And so we have we've been manufacturing products all over the world, frankly, in Europe and Asia and the States for the last 10, 12 years together. And that's that's why we decided it was the best fit for us. So you decided, how many products did you go out with in the first launch, the initial We launched with one product, one SKU. It was a five and a half quart Dutch oven in an eggshell color. That was it. Why Why go with just one? We launched with one because we were sort of sick and tired of the of too many choices and we think white is obviously super versatile in every kitchen and on every tabletop people our customers repeatedly tell us that they love the fact that they can take the product from the oven or the stovetop onto the table on a trivet because it's usually hot and it looks really pretty and we could have gone with a blue or a gradient red or something or frankly a black but we launched the white because we felt who can hate white It's beautiful and simple and modern and clean and goes in every kitchen aesthetic. Let's take a quick break from my chat with Milo co-founder Zach Shaw. I wanted to remind you that like every Finding Inspo episode, this one is also shoppable. Zach and I have curated items from our conversation and a few others that are inspiring us lately for the special Finding Inspo store on Shop. Next to each product, we'll also tell you why we're loving it. At Shop, we just launched our kitchen and cookware category, and I'm literally obsessed. I was sure to pick a few of my favorite chef tools for the Finding Inspo store. You can shop them all at bearshop.com slash inspo. And just for Finding Inspo listeners, new Shop customers can take 20% off their first purchase with the code INSPOZ. Next, we'll take you back to less than a year ago, to the moment when Zach knew that Milo had the chance to take off and, of course, We'll also share some of our favorite recipes. And so you launched with one. 
when did you when was that real catalyst that you knew like okay this was a thing was there a certain moment or a certain pickup or uh, a certain kind of wave where you found that tipping point that was like okay milo is something we really need to put all of our effort behind yeah for sure i mean within three days of launching online we'd been written up in about probably a dozen big national publishing uh, national reach media publications and that we had never seen that before with our last brand for sure and with the bike biz it was really hard to get that traction and people were really hungry for stories and we saw really early on three days into it oh wow we've exceeded the sales of our last business in six months in three days and we said this is probably what we should spend our time on sounds almost like a no-brainer yeah so you launched with the one what happened from there we launched the one and we manufactured enough inventory that we thought would last us six months and it generally takes a couple months to get new product here and manufacture it and we so we made enough that we, of what our projections told us that we made enough to last six months. And it lasted us one month. So what happened was we said, okay, we need to build a lot more Dutch ovens. If we're doing that, we should probably take customer feedback into play. And customers said, when are you going to come up with new sizes? When are you going to come up with new colors? And we took polls and we were kind of passionate about black and um, we decided to launch a smaller size and a matte black version of both. The matte black is very beautiful. Yeah, we and like it too. It has the knob. Yeah, it's, it's a brass. I, yeah. It's a brass knob. It's really, yeah, we like that one too. So you, you have white, you have black, and you launched uh, black in the five and a half court. And then what else came? So we launched, we started with the white, yeah. the, bi- the five and a half court white. Then we launched the five and a half court black. And then we launched the three and a half quart black and white together a few months later. And then we've since launched our 10 inch ultimate skillet. How much customer feedback goes into creating something that is more different than a size change, like something with the skillet? Um, a ton, all. I mean, I, sometimes I like to be selfish and I know that I want a, a bigger skillet or a smaller Dutch oven or a different shape, but but all feedback we we are very data driven and consider and we we track that very closely so so for so taking a step back then you and I are are have been in the kitchen a lot of folks have not they've never come across a cast iron pan can you talk through which one somebody should choose first if somebody has a gateway drug into Milo's cookware what's the first item that you would suggest they they grab that's a great question I would probably go for one of our Dutch ovens. I think people buy skillets to make things like eggs and brown chicken thighs or meats, but I have no problem, and we advise all the time, if you have just purchased our Dutch oven, you can absolutely make a steak or burgers or whatever it is that you think you can only make in your skillet in that Dutch oven. The bottom of it's exactly the same. It's a cast iron enameled surface, just like the skillet. It just has higher walls. You can make soups and stews and taller things that you can't really make in a skillet. But uh, I would probably, I would probably go for the Dutch oven. What's your favorite thing to make? We 
often make what we call Milo chicken. Uh-huh. It's in our cookbook. It's slow-cooked chicken thighs. Chicken thighs are probably my number one go-to. And I wasn't a big chicken fan, mm-hmm. but when I did get my hands on a cast iron, it changed the game. Yeah. Skin on or, or boneless? Or skin on? We go boneless, skinless. Yeah. And we use caper berries and lemons. Yum. And sometimes we do the, go the tomato route. And Milo chicken. It's our favorite. It's my favorite. Uh, and probably a, cl- a crowd pleaser. So you're... The, the products have only been out. Your first launch was, what, a year and a half ago? April 17th, yeah. So not that long ago. Where do you see Milo going next? I see Milo continuing to try and innovate in the kitchen and come out with products that our customers are asking for. We, we guessed the first time with the Dutch oven, and people really liked it, and people wanted a smaller one. People want bigger ones in different sizes, and... We take that data and it really drives our decision making. And so we see a lot of opportunity in the kitchenware space, both in the enameled cast iron world and outside of the enameled cast iron world. And so we're going to continue to take that customer feedback and use that data and and go from there. And for people who, who have a passion, who have an area that they're interested in, but they don't have a company yet, they don't have any data, they don't have any guidance from mm-hmm. the numbers, Thinking back to your days starting Milo, to your days starting the bicycle company, how do you go about uh, actually turning that idea that I'm passionate about this space, I want to figure something out into a reality? What is that initial trial and error process, and, and what advice would you give to folks who are fixated on an idea but don't actually have something granular that they want to do with it? I think... Now and today, in 2019, it's easier than ever to start a business. With very little to no money, you can absolutely... Actually, I have a funny story, which is before we launched Milo, we had a my girlfriend at the time, Tessa, who's my fiancé now, uh, we started a, a candle business out of our house, and we called it the Milo House. And our close friends are the only ones that know about that, so they say, how's the Milo House doing? I say, no, 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 it's Milo now. But the Milo House was... I had left the bike company and I decided I wanted to start a one day business to see how, if I could do it. And so in one, so Tessa was making candles in the kitchen to give for gifts as friend, to friends. And we made the candles. We designed stickers. I had them printed. I picked the stickers up. I took photos in our living room of the candles. I created a website and we sold a candle on the first day. So it really doesn't have to be that hard. And I love that one day business. Yeah, it was a one day business. And we kept doing it for probably a year. It was both, it was our side project for both of us. And neither of us were really focused on it. And it wasn't until we, one of the like really big national retailers, knock, department stores, knocked on our door saying they wanted, you know, 6,000 candles. We said, this is when our business dies because we don't want, both don't want to quit what we're really passionate about working on full time. To pursue this and if we're not going to pursue this business changing opportunity let's let's table it so yeah that's also not the obvious uh route i know when you when you get that big po and, mm-hmm. and you decide to tap out mm-hmm. well we were making it of our house and frankly it was it was really tedious and cumbersome and hot you know we had we were doing it on all four stove burners and that wasn't enough at one point, so we bought camping stoves. And on our dining room table, we had like seven camping stoves going. 
heating up wax and then pouring it and it was a mess and it really was making our house really hot so we outsourced it and found a guy that would help us make the candles in LA and that was really great but we were a peon to him and it was just and it wasn't our full-time thing and we had all these stores buying from us and we were shipping them all over the country and we said we either need to quit our jobs and do this or move on and so we sold out of our candles a few times and we moved on and What's that? I do love that idea, though, at the start, because, the, I mean, the capital outlay, a.k.a. how many mm-hmm. credit card swipes just to get that thing spun up and going in the first day, it's not that high. It's, it's not some, that high. It's worth trying. It's yeah. worth trying out. I'm not a photographer, and I shot the photos, and we sold candles that way. And eventually, you sell enough candles to hire a photographer that knows what they're doing, but people are crafty. It's really easy to get something live. But I, I think the best wisdom is to to build it. And, and I mean, I mean, I'm talking about the physical product. But there's 3D printing technology. There's prototyping technology. We made Dutch ovens out of cardboard. Out of uh, at first, we had cart, we had um, like construction paper, and we're bending it around in different colors and cutting it a bunch of ways. And that was really what we were doing at first. Now this is cooler than that. No, I like this better. But that's not quite as ergonomic for the finger holes. And so. You just kind of have to hustle your way through it. You find a way. Just mm-hmm. make it happen. Just find a way. So at Milo now, how do you see yourself as a different worker, leader, colleague than you were at the bicycle company? How, how much have has you changed in the last, what, decade um, from your start until now? I like to think I'm still kind of a maker, even though I'm not the one actually making this stuff anymore but at the bike biz I always enjoyed being the, even when we had 50 employees being the guy unloading the containers by hand for two hours in a 120 degree tin box and I like to kind of get my hands dirty and really be a part of it whether that's in preparing for our photo shoots and helping chop vegetables to being on the sidelines and jumping in our support queue and talking to customers. But having a deep understanding of every little piece of the business is really important to me. So I like to, I do not like to sit in an office at a desk for all day and answer emails. I want to be on the ground talking to customers, making it happen. Probably part of the reason why I don't have a set studios because <laughs> I was a journalist before because I like the same thing. So, so when you do think about, um, uh, about being a maker and continuing your passion, uh, doing something for a long time can start to erode mm-hmm. that passion and that initial bug. How is there things that you're doing to make sure that you stay excited about the day to day? Because frankly, starting a business, you have great, amazing days, but there are times that are really hard. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure that you're in the mindset to continue that excitement and continue um, putting the same amount of passion behind your company, which I think has served it well? I mean, going back to what I was saying about working on a project that you're passionate about, cooking is a huge part of our lives. Nothing brings more joy, it doesn't feel like lately, than having a fun meal at home with our best friends and family. And so just that alone keeps me excited about it. We're using the cookware, we're taking photos, we're, we're full in head first every night, and, and that's what's fun about it. And sharing those experiences with other people, 
bringing people into the kitchen, getting people to cook more, introducing them to the category and what they can do. It's all the fact that I'm able to kind of enjoy it in real life outside of work is really helpful. The millennial generation has kind of been pegged as the food delivery generation. Mm-hmm. Have you run into that and into problems with that at all? Do do does our generation need to be convinced to spend more time in the kitchen and less time just uh, checking out in an app? I think totally. I think people are absolutely addicted to cell phones right now, and you know, a lot of people, a lot of my friends, push me to meditate, and I have a hard time with it. But what I found is that being in the kitchen and chopping vegetables or washing pots and pans or preparing for a fun dinner party is my meditation. And I think it's really important in, for me to, for that time, I think it's really important to be present and that's what gets me to be there because meditating is hard for me and probably for a lot of people. But being in the kitchen is not. And our mission is to get people into the kitchen and back into the kitchen and back into loving cooking. So for sure, there are those food delivery generation. There's, we're in a food delivery generation, but we're trying to do everything we can to get people back into the kitchen. And it is that idea of ritual. And it's something that I've come back to with a lot of the founders that I've talked to. Uh, ritual doesn't always look like the same thing for everyone. Um, we, I talked to Andrew Cinnamon, who founded an amazing incense company that screams ritual a little bit more because you think about you know taking those quiet moments. Cooking for a lot of people is ritual in and of itself. If, if, if you're talking to somebody who is intimidated or perhaps doesn't know how to get into it, are there tricks that you would give somebody? I know that I love starting with a base recipe and making it and then figuring out what flavors I like to add. And just that process of, of doing something multiple times, you kind of find that idea of ritual. How, what suggestions would you give to somebody who's trying to um, turn the kitchen into perhaps more of a mental haven? Yeah, I think we have a few really interesting starter recipes on our cookbook that are really easy. And like we talked about before, chicken thighs, salt, pepper, olive oil. It's not intimidating. And a lot of thyme. Yeah. Maybe some onions would be nice. <laughs> um, but it's not intimidating and you can start really small. I like that idea of starting small and adding on from there. Maybe you add some caper berries later or you go a little wild with citrus. But Calabrian chili is my go-to if you like heat. It's an Italian chili paste. Mm. Um, and again, I like the skin on, so I'll mix that with butter and herbs and stuff it under the skin and then oh, do wow. the hard sear. Uh, you really cook. I, I'm a, I'm a devotee. Are y'all hungry yet or what? I walked away from this conversation craving chicken and wanting to start my own 24-hour company. I accomplished just one of those tasks. And after a long self-deliberation, I also decided what color Milo Dutch oven I needed for my stovetop. You can see which one I picked and shop all of Zach and my other favorites at vershop.com slash inspo. And if you missed the news, all Vershop purchases now through the end of 2019 come with free one-day shipping. So you can satiate those shopping cravings even faster. New Vershop customers can also take 20% off their first purchase with the code INSPOZ. If you're finding INSPO from this episode or any of the other episodes in this podcast, I would hope that you would rate and review it. It helps new listeners find us. 
And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Inspo Podcast or follow me at Alex Barinka. This podcast was produced by me, Alex Barinka, with production and editing support from Wonder Media Network. Thanks so much for listening and see you soon.